Please be seated. Here we are in the home stretch, rounding the final turn and headed for home. And uh, so in this uh, last talk, what I want to do is draw some of these things together in thinking about uh, how we Christians uh, relate to the world that God made, and in particular thinking about how this might relate to our own stance towards science and the sciences, and of course to scientists. I have two children, a daughter who's now in college and a son who's in high school, and one evening when my daughter was about two and my wife was pregnant with my son, I gave my wife a break. I took my daughter to the mall. Uh, we went to her favorite place, which is the pet shop, and uh, we just went there to look at the animals. It's, you can get up closer to the animals in the pet shop than you can in the zoo, after all. And uh, while we were there, that, that particular evening, uh, one of the clerks at the store was showing a snake to these teenage boys. This snake was some kind of python, I think. Um, and uh, these two boys were, uh, it was kind of funny to watch them actually. The, the clerk was holding the snake and these two teenage boys were trying to get up the nerve to touch the snake. And then each was needling the other about uh, which of them was the more manly as they're kind of, eh, 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 just uh, afraid of this serpent. Now, now, I knew, uh, because, because I knew about snakes from my boyhood, that uh, a python that you could handle like that is, is nothing to worry about. It won't bite you. It can't, it's not going to hurt you. And, it, and it's actually, this one was, if it's small enough for you to handle, it's too small to do you any harm anyhow. Um, the, the really large ones, uh, the, the kind that are getting loose in the Florida Everglades, for example, um, when they're really large, they can hurt you, but mostly it's not because they're trying to, it's because they get scared and they're constrictors, they're very strong, and so they might strangle you by accident and so forth. So it was funny to watch these two boys, afraid to touch this snake, I knowing what I did, when my daughter asked if she could just pet the snake. And so the clerk reached down the snake to her and she just, he made sure, he said, now make sure you go from the head backwards because you don't want to go the other way because it has scales and, and so forth. So she just pet the snake right along its, from at the top of its head, right along its back. And these two boys were ashamed of being shown up by a toddler girl. And well, they should have been. <laughs> well, of course I would tell you a story like that because I'm a proud father, but I actually have another reason in addition to that. I think it can be a kind of a parable for the way that many Christians approach science. I think we often fear it. Uh, we fear it, I think, for three main reasons. First, uh, with it, like everybody else, we found science classes hard at school. Uh, that's, as I say, that uh, doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you often encounter that's, that's a challenge. You have to learn mathematical tools, you have to learn patience and observation for the experiments, and lots of facts, lots of details, and uh, uh, nomenclature. You know, you use different naming systems. Um, if you know, if you, uh, uh, I know medical people in the church I attend, and, and it sounds like when they're talking to each other, it's a different language. Um, they, you know, they, they uh, um, it's never the shoulder blade, it's always the scapula, um, you know, and they, they, don't, they don't talk about, you know, uh, what, um, what uh, the patient was complaining about. They, they talk about what the patient was presenting. And I mean, it, and so there's, you know, all these uh, different ways of, of uh, talking. 
And, you know, and there are many different sciences. They've, they've developed quite a lot over the last couple of hundred years. And so there's a lot of specialization as well. As I say, that's something we have in common with everyone. The second reason, however, touches on our faith more directly. We fear that somehow science will undermine our faith. Now, you have many writers hostile to Christianity, such as Richard Dawkins and the late Carl Sagan, making just that point, and that tends to add to our fear. Well, there's a third reason why we often dislike or uh, fear science, and that's we're not really sure that it's good uh, or that the world is really worth the effort that it takes to study it. Um, sometimes we say the world is fallen without being careful uh, just what we should mean by saying that. Uh, other times we say, be careful, don't make an idol of the world, don't love the creature too much, that will displace the creator. And then we're not so sure that this is God's world. Well, I think my daughter's interest in the python expresses true Christianity better than these common fears. Her curiosity about that little wriggling thing, uh, her delight in touching it, which is how she feels about most animals, including bugs, those, those uh, uh, attitudes were untainted by any fears or misgivings. It's just pure curiosity. And as I see it, this is just how it ought to be. Um, in fact, if we have a proper hold on the Christian, uh, a proper hold on Christian belief, if we really imbibe the Christian story and grasp the Christian worldview, then we'll actually come to studies in science with full mental vigor, confident that God's truth can hold up under any challenge. And not only that, but that this truth is going to illuminate and enrich our studies. This truth of God is actually going to help us be better at the sciences. And the more we know of God's world, uh, the more we can love the one who made the world. He is awesome beyond words. The world that he made is an incredible achievement. So let's first talk about loving science. In Psalm 104, verses 24 and 31, we celebrate, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. In the context of Psalm 104, the works are the works in creation, making this incredible world that has all these magnificent features. One of the main points that I think God wants me to help people understand is the idea that the Christian worldview makes a better home for science than any other worldview does. Right now, though, I want to go further and say that everyone who really embraces the Christian faith should support the sciences wholeheartedly. Our faith equips us with four strong motives for loving science. And the first is to praise the creator for his creativity. Genesis tells us that when God made the world, he kept looking at the stuff that he made and seeing that it was good. God made the world out of his own overflowing goodness. God has so much goodness that any one creature or multitudes of only one kind of creature wouldn't be enough to display it. So he made multitudes of many different kinds of creatures. There are so many different elements, so many different compounds, so many different plant and animal types, different planets and stars, and the same God made them all to show forth his glory. To study just a little bit of this, knowing that the God who saved me in Christ is the one who made it all, enables me to honor him more fully. 
Secondly, the sciences uh, allow Christians to enjoy God's goodness as we satisfy our curiosity. The world that God made has no end of really interesting things in it. Birds, and mountains, and stars, and so much more. And it is all so cool. It is just so interesting. How do these things work? How do birds fly? How do mountains rise? How do stars glow? Curiosity is a part of the image of God. And though it's true we can get curious about sordid things like human evil, the world that God made is not a sordid place. Christians in recent times have often been unsure about whether the life of the mind is really a good thing or even a tolerable thing, but this kind of uncertainty is thoroughly unbiblical. I mean, our minds are, some, are a part of the image of God, and we use those minds according to God's will. Well, thirdly, the sciences allow us to serve mankind. The sciences have helped us to harness the powers of nature for the sake of human good. Medicine is, is the obvious example of this and probably the thing that most people think about when they think about the sciences. I remember reading a few years ago uh, when, when uh, our, uh, uh, the American forces began the Iraq War, so that would be 2003, and there were a lot of stories on advances in uh, battlefield medical technology. Uh, they, uh, I mean, on the battlefield, uh, what, what happens to a large number of the casualties is that they bleed to death before they can be treated properly. And if you can stop the bleeding, you can probably save their lives and maybe even save their limbs. Uh, and so there's all, all these new technologies uh, for stopping the bleeding. Uh, for example, there's this kind of powder that you tear open the bag, throw the powder in there, and, and you uh, help the blood to clot and so forth. And, and um, uh, so, you know, we've made many advances. I, I'm in the process of reading Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizen Soldiers, about uh, the American forces in the northwest of Europe at the end of World War II. And he's comparing medical treatment in World War II to uh, medical treatment uh, during the Civil War. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's a huge difference. And, and now we're way beyond uh, what could be done in World War II. E even the sort, if, if you've seen the film Saving Private Ryan, you see what, what the medic is doing. The use of morphine, for example, the, the ability, you know, the, the tools and, and so on. So th those were huge advances just in those uh, 80 years or so. And uh, in the 60 years since then, we have even more advances. And it's magnificent. We think of the ability to save uh, various, uh, uh, to, to solve various problems with uh, surgery and so on, uh, things that would have uh, killed people um, uh, in, in earlier years. My, uh, my wife's first pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy, and that usually, uh, uh, in, in the old days, that, that would kill a woman. Uh, she would bleed to death, um, and uh, that, that could be uh, cured. I mean, we, we couldn't save the baby, um, but but we saved her life because of the surgery and so forth. So there's all kinds of magnificent advances in medical science and medical technology. Now we've used, of course, these advances to develop tools to ruin other people as well. Even some of the medical technology has been used to do just that. But all this really shows is that the natural sciences don't carry the ethics within them. Uh, so what we need are dedicated Christians with hearts formed by Christian teaching who know how to apply their ethics as well as their intellects to the world 
that God made. And then fourthly, the sciences allow us to answer unbelief. I mentioned already how some unbelievers use the tools of science to prove, as they think, a worldview that opposes the Christian one. As it turns out, a use like that is actually a misuse, but it takes some knowledge to be able to tell. Who's going to help people evaluate the claims? Uh, Richard Dawkins is probably one of the most famous right now, and he's, uh, he seems, I think he has retired from his uh, professorship at Oxford, and so he has a lot more time to write books. And I wish that he would spend more time in the classroom um, and write fewer books. But uh, he, is, um, at, he is insistent that uh, the study of science and religious faith are utterly incompatible. Uh, and and uh, when uh, President Obama nominated Francis Collins, uh, who's a geneticist, he was the head of the Human Genome Project, and no relation to me, by the way, but nominated him to be the head of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Uh, that there was a bit of a hue and cry from certain sectors of, of, uh, of our uh, culture, civilization, media, and so forth, that Christian faith, which Francis Collins has, and scientific practice are utterly incompatible. Who will help people evaluate these claims? Here's what C.S. Lewis once observed. He was speaking to a group of students at Oxford at the very beginning of the Second World War. And uh, he was addressing the question whether it's legitimate to be pursuing the learned life when there's a war going on. And uh, he said, among, among other things, he said the following, if all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. But as it is, a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. And so he concluded the learned life then is for some a duty. Now, in my experience, Christians, when they talk about science at all, have stressed the last two in this list, namely to serve mankind and to answer unbelief. But uh, we've tended then to underplay the first two, namely to enjoy the creator uh, and, uh, and to express our curiosity, to express the image of God. But if we allow ourselves to continue underplaying those first two as well as the second two, we're actually going to lose some key aspects of being fully functioning humans in this world that God made. So that leads to my second point, getting a good education in science. If we're to claim the world for the Lord Jesus, we need to see more of our young people going into the sciences for their careers. And we need to make sure that those who have other careers have a positive appreciation of the sciences, uh, along with a palate to train to discern truth from error. Uh, and this means that we need to pursue excellence in the way that we study and teach the sciences. Now, I'm a parent, and uh, so I speak a as a parent to other parents and say we parents are shirking our responsibilities if we pass the whole job along to our schools. Instead, we have to be models of what we aim for. And so let me just take you through a few practical steps that we can take. First, we should express curiosity and wonder 
about the world that God made. Uh, for example, we can look out our back window and watch the birds and the squirrels go about their lives. We can comment on the different habits and foods and dwellings of the different animals. We can talk about airflow as we watch a bird soar. We can look at the different rocks in the garden and see what they can tell us about the prehistory of the region that we live in. We can wonder aloud for our kids to think too about how things work and we can use toys that teach us how to build things. A rector set, tinker toys, and you know, all, the, all the more contemporary equivalents, Legos and so forth. Secondly, we can uh, go to museums and zoos and take our kids along. These are, these are uh, tools that can take us into parts of the universe we can never visit on our own. Now, I don't know whether I'll ever get a chance to go to sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, I'd love to, but I just don't know, and it costs money and time and so forth. But I can see some of the wildlife and some of the plant life and some of the terrain and so forth at the zoos and the museums that are available to me. Well, the third step comes from the second step. Many museums and zoos have signs with their exhibits, which, some of which make claims that go beyond the evidence. And this means that we have to learn sound critical thinking. Let me give you an example. The St. Louis Zoo is uh, one of the finest in the country. Uh, you might uh, remember the, uh, the show Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. Marlon Perkins uh, uh, got his start as the uh, keeper of reptiles in the St. Louis Zoo. And uh, there's a, a great story in, um, in it's an, an old classic about snakes of the world. Um, uh, there's a, a great story about Marlon Perkins nearly dying because he was bitten by a Gabon viper. Uh, it's a poisonous snake from Africa. And uh, so the, the author is telling you know, all the stages that, uh, that the poor man went through before he finally survived. Uh, you knew he survived because he lived to be the host of Wild Kingdom. But uh, in any case, um, so the St. Louis Zoo is, is a great facility, uh, world-class, I think. And in fact, what makes it even better is the fact that corporations donate money so that anyone can go there for free. Now, I'm, I'm not an advocate of drunkenness or anything like that, but, but Anheuser-Busch uh, has historically put a lot of money into the zoos and the museums in St. Louis so that people can go there for free. And, and um, so, you know, I wouldn't want people to abuse their products and so forth, but I am grateful that the company has been so generous, and other companies that are headquartered in St. Louis have been similarly generous. Well, um, it had, the uh, zoo had an exhibit a few years ago of a certain kind of goat that lives in the Sahara Desert, and the sign was describing the specialized feet that this goat has, uh, and uh, it said that the goat had developed the foot pads in order to adapt to its environment. That's fairly standard in these signs that you find in zoos. And so I wanted uh, to illustrate critical thinking for my kids. Now, first of all, we know that it has these pads. Uh, and it seems pretty likely that these pads do help the animals in this harsh environment. They, they help to walk on the, this kind of sand and loose rock and so forth. But how do we know that it developed these pads? I mean, that's, how, how do we know that? What's the process by which we come to that conclusion? Now, this is an inference. It's a conclusion. It's, it's a, the end of a process of reasoning. And I'm not even saying that it's a bad inference. I'm just saying that we need to be clear about what it is. And so we, we need to help people um, distinguish, okay, we, we, the fact is that the animal has these pads. The inference 
is that the ancestors of this animal didn't have those pads, and so they were developed over time. Is that a good inference? What would it take for that to be a good inference? What evidence uh, should we consult, and, and so forth? I mean, that's, uh, and just to help my kids think through the whole process. Um, because I don't think that you can say that it's a fact that the animal developed those foot pads in the same way that you can say it's a fact that it has those foot pads. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that it's a bad inference necessarily, but we just need to know what's what. Another example. A few years ago, my family uh, was in the Canadian Rockies, and we went to the Athabasca Glacier. If, if you ever get a chance to go up there, I do strongly recommend it. Go in the summer, uh, and the, the days are hot, and they're uh, very low humidity. It's a very, very sunny. It's, it's a, a terrific, uh, just a terrific location. Uh, and there's this long highway between Banff, which is down in the south of the Canadian Rockies Park, all the way up to Jasper, which is uh, in the north. I felt like I was in the top, at the top of the world in Jasper. I was wondering if we were going to fall off. Um, it's, it's delightful. And about midway between those is the Athabasca Glacier. The Athabasca Glacier actually uh, has, uh, is uh, connected to the uh, Columbia ice fields there. And um, you're far enough north that some of the water from the glaciers of the Columbia ice fields drain into the Arctic Ocean. That's how far north you are. Um, and you know, there's, so there's some that drain uh, on uh, this side of, of the Rockies, on the east side of the Rockies. There are others that, that drain into the west side of the Rockies and into the Pacific. Well, the visitor center at this particular glacier, by the way, you, you can actually, uh, at this glacier, you, you can, they, they take you on special trips out onto the glacier. So you can be on a glacier and, and you can uh, drink water that has just melted. I mean, just, you know, seconds ago it was ice and it has just melted. And it is the, the purest and the cleanest and the freshest thing that you can imagine drinking. Well, the visitor center has an exhibit on the geology and the history of the region with some photographs of the glacier over the last 100 years. And these photos show that at first, uh, so 100 years ago, the glacier came almost all the way to the road. Over the years, the glacier has receded, so it's a long way from the road now. And uh, so the exhibit has a sign discussing this. Uh, they say it may be caused by climate change or there may be another cause. And if there's climate change, it may be due to human activity or there may be other causes, and, and it talks about some of the other causes that are possible. Now, what I appreciate about this sign is its honesty. It lays out the possibilities and invites you to think for yourself. I mean, the, the facts are these photographs, and, you know, and I guess you have to trust that whoever put those photographs together is, is giving you an accurate representation of, of what's going on. I, I mean, I don't know, but... But nevertheless, the idea of this exhibit was good, that it, that it um, takes you through the process of critical thinking, and, and that's something I wanted to commend for my kids so they can see that in operation. I'm not, I'm not sure we'd have, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure we'd have such helpful signs uh, down here below the, uh, below the border. Um, and uh, up, up there in, in that country, I guess they have a little bit more opportunity to, well, it's Western Canada, they, they're really into freedom of thought. So, um, but the point is, we parents need to be asking ourselves, how do we know the things that we so confidently assert? How do we answer disagreement uh, uh, on the part 
whether it comes from our children or from our neighbors or whatever? Do we allow our children to discuss things with us? Do, do we allow our children to ask us to prove our positions with reasons? And do we allow them to take positions that they must support with reasons? And finally, we need to encourage those who teach science. We need to thank them. We need to ask them questions and urge that they be paid properly even and that they have time to read and to study more. Uh, I mentioned that uh, we were in Boston last week and we had a, a conversation with, <clears throat> the, uh, with my daughter's biology teacher. My daughter is majoring in ecology and evolutionary biology. And uh, her teacher is the chairman of the department. Uh, and a, a delightful person. Uh, and it was a wonderful conversation. My daughter had started a conversation with her early on in the semester and uh, raising questions about whether a purely natural, naturalistic story like Darwinism is enough uh, to, uh, to explain the features of the world and so forth. And he was, uh, he was interested in, in what she said and began and has been in conversation with her. And so at some point I asked my daughter, well, do you think I could send, him, send a, a copy of this to you so you can give it to him? And I, and I signed it from one person who loves science to another because her professor really does love science. Um, and my daughter told me that was exactly the right way to, uh, to sign it. And he's been reading the book, and he likes it. And, and he likes me because of the book. Um, and so it was, it was fun to have this conversation with him. And he told me that my daughter is the first person in his 32 years of teaching at Boston University, is the first person to offer a Christian perspective on these things in a way that actually made sense. Uh, within a, uh, an artic she's articulate, she argues well, and that's sort of the way my daughter is, but she also is respectful of him uh, she's respectful of science. She honors science. I mean, just all these things together. Uh, and um, a, lot, a lot of that really is, is, I think, due to the influence of Jerem Bars, whom uh, Pete had as uh, one of his teachers, uh, who, who teaches uh, his students in, in approaching people to show respect uh, and to honor them properly. And, uh, and so she does. And uh, so that, that got the conversation off on a tremendous footing and, and made it possible to talk about uh, features of, of human life and really you know eventually when you're talking about science as you get to talking about the world that God made you're talking about the story of the world and then you're talking about the story that produced human beings and this man had no difficulty acknowledging as, as I said before that there's, there's something really different about human beings and, and that's, that's a wonderful thing and, and so his honesty uh, and openness is something that I I could do nothing but commend and thank him for. Uh, and um, that's, that's the stance that we want to have uh, in our own, uh, in ourselves, and also uh, that we be open and honest. And when we see openness and honesty in others, to commend that as well. Brothers and sisters, God is magnificent, and his world is glorious and fascinating. And we honor him when we use all of our abilities to study what he has done. God has no fear that somehow in our studies we will uncover reasons for forsaking our faith as long as we're being truly critical and if god doesn't have that fear we don't need to fear either let me uh, finish by reading a few passages from the psalms i mentioned psalm 104 earlier psalm 104 starting in verse 31 may the glory of the lord endure forever may the lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles who touches the mountains and they smoke 
I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed in faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. And thank you.